There have been quite a number of prominent and even famous American Baptists over the years. Um, Men of industry, Colgate, you may have heard of him. Tooth guy. You may have heard of a guy named John D. Rockefeller. He's a little bit of a player. These days, there's not really all that many famous American Baptists. We don't have that one big national figure. Really, the only guy we have that people have heard of is a guy named Tony Campolo. And uh, I remember, I've heard him preaching most of my life here and there. I've heard him online. I've had CDs of him. And one time we were at the Biennial when it was in Washington, D.C., and I heard him talking about himself. And he began uh, with, with a story about his life and, and about his, his station in our, in our denomination. And he said that there was a time early in his ministry that he and his family ha- had been heading to a church where he was scheduled to speak. And his kids were just starting to realize that people knew who he was. And they, they talked about him in, in elevated and glowing terms, his daughter more than his son. And as they pulled into the parking lot, they, they had kind of lost their way. Church was about to begin, and there were only four or five cars there. And his son, Bart, looked out and said, there's nobody here. And next to him, Campolo's daughter said, shh, be nice. It's hard to be famous when nobody knows who you are. And you know, when I read here about the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, whoa, I think, you know, anymore, I, I, I don't know who anybody is who's famous. I, I could be rubbing shoulders with all the new hot singers and, and celebrities, and I'd have, I'd have very little idea. Half of them are just famous from YouTube, and they're not even really famous. Now here we find, though, that people do know who Peter is even though Peter is not in the least bit concerned with lifting up himself and being famous and being honored. And the fact that they know his name, they know who he is, they know what he's done, protects him at least for a while. And the idea of name and knowing one's name is central to this chapter. We saw this last week. There's six references to the word name in Acts chapter 4. We saw three of them last week. It began with... The questioning, by what name or what authority and by whose power do you do these things? Peter answered, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he went on to explain more and more who Jesus is, what he has done, and ends by saying, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There is no other, this is the only name by power, by the only name that can give us salvation. That is where we left off. And so we pick up here with verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They're amazed by three things. Their boldness paired with the fact that they're uneducated and common. Now the King James says that they recognize that they were ignorant and unlearned. And I want to challenge that. Not that they did a bad job in translating, but that the word ignorant has shifted in meaning in the past 500 years or so. 400 and change. And that... We now should probably think in different terms. I like the, the ESV saying uneducated and common. And you have to recognize that this is coming from the 
perspective of people who are all the cream of the crop, educationally speaking. They're the elite, the scholars, the intelligentsia in the religious world in Jerusalem and by extension in all of the Jewish world. Jesus himself has been said to be the very same thing in John chapter 7. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Same word there being used for unschooled. He hadn't gone to the rabbinical schools and gotten all the right degrees. This does not mean that the apostles were illiterate. Obviously not, because they wrote books of the Bible. They wrote letters. They wrote gospels. And if you read the Greek of the Gospel of John, it's nothing to sneeze at. It is quite a masterpiece, actually. It's just that from the point of view of the religious elite, they hadn't gone to seminary. I shared a story last time about a mentor of mine who was kind of shunned and dismissed even these days for not having the right education. Yeah, they spent three and a half years in what we would recognize as the greatest seminary in the world, being in the presence of Christ following him around, teaching and learning and even doing ministry under his leadership. But from the point of view of the Sanhedrin, this high council, this high court, it's unaccredited. In their eyes, they went to Harvard and Yale. And these two guys went to the University of American Samoa or something. And so they're looking down upon them. They are uneducated. And the second word in the Greek, it's idiotes which you can see how we would get to ignorant from there. Sounds an awful lot like idiots, where our word idiot uh, shares an etymology with it. But what it means in this case is an amateur, a layperson. We look down and say, you're not one of us. You're not wearing the right robes. You didn't go to the right schools. And yet you are speaking boldly and eloquently. And this is a mark of the Christian church. That those who are filled with the Spirit... Even those, especially those of low station who aren't the right people, the movers, the shakers, the famous people are used of God for the greatest things. D.L. Moody's ministry began in earnest when he was ruminating on what he heard from an Irish revivalist named Henry Varley, who he heard say the words, Varley didn't remember them years later when confronted, but he said, we have yet to see what God will do with one man who is completely committed and sanctified for him. One man consecrated for God. And as Moody thought about that, he thought, hmm, he didn't say one genius, one prodigy. He didn't even say one scholarly and learned man. He said one man who, who said, I will be the one who will be completely devoted and consecrated to God. With God's help, by the Holy Spirit in me, I will be that man. And still today, this sort of painting of Christians as ignorant and backwards and troublemakers, exactly what the enemies of the church were trying to do here, continues. Even Christians who are scholars and have high degrees are often kind of pushed aside and, and condescended to. And it is assumed that they're not as intelligent as their peers. But in the midst of all this, they see that they had been with Jesus. 
Now, we found out last week that the captain of the temple guard is present. Perhaps he recognized Peter. You don't quickly forget the face of someone who chops off an ear right in front of you. I don't, anyway. I don't know about you. Maybe someone clued them in. Now, these two guys, I saw them before. Or maybe they just recognized the attitude and the kinds of words. Sometimes you just can tell. Right? How we all heard Mimi up here and said, Oh, you're from New Jersey. Right? Go to the office and see Deborah Dorsey. And, okay, easy to tell. Maybe they could just tell. You, you've got Jesus written all over you. Maybe that, this whole thing is a sense of deja vu for them. Because they're now in sort of the same situation they were in with Jesus. Only now there's two of them. We were going to deal with this guy. I thought we did deal with the problem. We went to all that trouble. We traded in favors. We made threats to Pilate. We did everything we needed to get this guy taken care of. And now he's multiplying. And not only is there two, but there's ten more out there we know. And we also know that there's thousands more being added to the ranks of those following them day by day. They're trying to remove the lump. And they find out they were too late. It's already spreading. And from their point of view, it's a cancerous tumor they're removing. And the cancer has spread. But from God's point of view, it's a lump of dough put into an unleavened lump. And the leaven spreads through the whole lump of dough. Like Jesus said, through the whole loaf of bread. And the spreading is not about to be stopped by the works even of the Sanhedrin. What I find amusing and what most people have noticed as they read the book of Acts and the history of the early church is that by beginning this sort of persecution, they actually further the interest of the church and the mission of the church. Justin Martyr said, the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. That's how you water this thing and make it grow. You think you're stomping us out. And I believe it was, uh, I think it was either St. Athanasius or Trip Lee, who said, what are you going to do, murder us? All murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. And that is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We, we see that they are trying to push, and they are going to get to the point where they kill someone, and that causes people even in fear to flee from Jerusalem in all directions, and all that does is spread the gospel yet further. God is at work in all of this. 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I like that, the, that Luke doesn't just say seeing the man was present. No, they see him standing. And the fact that he's standing is the whole problem. Because this guy couldn't stand hours earlier. And here he is now testifying. His very presence is a testimony to the power of Jesus. And there's these people who follow him. And, and, and as they look at him, they say, our options are limited, but we have to do something. And to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they go into executive session, as they say. All right, we're just going to talk. You're not going to listen. The educated elite here, clearly motivated by the fear of men. We can't, we can't do anything because everyone saw the miracle that happened. Well, the unwashed masses, the Ordinary, unlearned, common men are motivated solely by the fear of God and this boldness and eloquence that comes from the Holy Spirit. We see this again and again. 
throughout the church age. From the very beginning, we think of people like Perpetua, a young woman who went into the, the Colosseum to be killed for her faith and, and was so serene that the man who was to kill her was shaking and she helped guide the knife to her throat and became such a witness that even many Romans who had been persecuting the church came to faith. We, we see men like John Knox during the Reformation about whom Barclay said he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. And we know fear is motivating them as they go into their little unholy, holy huddle and say, what shall we do? Here's a question. How do we know exactly what was said in this little conference? I mean, you could say, well, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke, but when you read the, the preamble to Luke, it's clear his methodology is, I researched I looked into it. I took copious notes. I put this thing together like a journalist. That means we got another one of them, right? We'd already gotten, when we find in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, members of the High Council who began to follow Jesus but in secret and then come out as followers of Jesus after his death and prior to his resurrection. Someone else now must have also come to faith and said, oh, let me tell you what happened on that day. What was said? And we find out what was said, starting in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? Or the King James is probably more accurate, what shall we do to these men? Because these men is the direct object of the do. What are we going to do to them? What can we do? What are we allowed to do that, that won't get us in trouble with the crowds and threaten our power? What, what can we do, seeing as how a notable sign has been performed through them, that's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that we cannot deny it. They acknowledge that, yes, a miracle has happened, but who cares? They're most dedicated to protecting their power, their position, their influence. We're, we see that a notable thing has happened, a notable sign. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. Notice that. Whenever you see it, you've got to go back and say, what's the closest thing that makes sense for it to be? So that it will spread no further. The it was the notable sign. The miracle. The guy that, that was standing before them. How is that going to spread? Well, I think, it, I think they're saying something beyond what they recognize they're saying. A beautiful truth here. The word for he's standing there, in Greek is stasis, stasis, right? He's standing. He was lying down when they found him by the temple gate called Beautiful. Now he's standing again. He's been restored to health. In Greek, the word anastasis, meaning again standing, is the word for resurrection. You were lying in the tomb, now you're standing again. And that is what is at stake here. Jesus rose again. And because Jesus rose again, there's power for us to be raised from death to life. That is what salvation is, and it is spreading, and they want it to go no further. And this man standing there is just a reminder of how real all of these things are and how dangerous they are to the powers that be. And so they go out in verse 18 and warn them. They called and charged them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. This is your one freebie. Guys, this is it. After this, I have no more for you. 
So we trust that you're not going to speak, you're not going to teach at all in this name. There's that word again. That's the powerful thing. You teach, you do your stuff, you live together in your little communes, but not in the name of Jesus. They're trying intimidation here, as powerful people often will, perhaps always will. Why? Because Satan has two different strategies, two tracks, and they're going simultaneously. The strategy of the lion, right? Your, your adversary, the devil, stalks about as a roaring lion deciding whom he will devour. The straightforward intimidation, the threats, the attacks. This is what we see here, in a sense. They're not able to go full-on lion and tear them to pieces, not yet, but they are flexing their muscles. And in this strategy, we, we see a, a tension-building. How are the apostles to respond to this? Because the scriptures again and again go out of their way to reinforce for us that believers must submit to authority over them because authority in God's sovereign will has been decreed and ordained by God. So are they obligated to continue to submit, to obey even unrealistic, even difficult things, even, even oppressive things we see in the Scriptures. For example, in John 19, Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate says to him, don't you know I have authority over you even to crucify you? The, the arrogance, just rolling off this guy's face. Jesus doesn't say, you're an illegitimate ruler. I don't even have to answer to you. No, he says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Acknowledging that God had even placed Pilate there in that moment. Because the end of Jesus' life, as he's about to be uh, put to death, the beginning of his life, while he's still in the womb, it's this submission to authority, even to Caesar, that causes Joseph and Mary to risk life and limb, to risk even the, the, the baby to follow the order to return to the ancestral home of Bethlehem and be counted in a census. And if that were the only word on this topic, say Romans 13, recently and famously quoted by a powerful person to, to kind of justify the, the acts of powerful people, well then, civil disobedience of any type would always be a gross sin. Right? Civil meaning having to do with the affairs of ordinary citizens. Disobedience. Rebellion. Scripture says rebellion is as, as the sin of witchcraft. A rebellion against authority would be a rebellion against God. And yet, as we look through the Scriptures, we see example after example of the exception to the rule. When, for example, King Darius says, you cannot pray to anyone but me. Don't you pray to your God for this amount of time. And Daniel's like, I'm good. I'm going to keep praying to my God. And I'm also going to do it out in the open, not in secret, so that anyone walking by can see me. That's open defiance. But ultimately, it's true submission to God. Or the text that Mimi read, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they, they, we talked about this last week. They were faced with this thing of, of do we bow the knee and, and offend God, or do we offend the king and bring down judgment on ourselves and be thrown into the furnace? They disobey. And this is the first of a number of times in the book of Acts where obedience to God means disobedience to a lesser authority. See, sometimes there's a conflict between authorities. Kids will try to play this up. 
hey, can I go to do this thing? Mom says, no. Hmm. Hey, Dad, can I go and do this thing? If I can get the authorities against each other. By the way, Mom's rule always overrules. That's what I say. No problem. But if there's a conflict between the authorities, the question is simply, which authority is higher? Scripture tells us to submit, even to your employer. Submit. And yet, if your employer tells you that you are to do something illegal, they're telling you to rebel against a higher authority, and you are obligated to disobey. And at any point, if someone tells us to, to disobey our Heavenly Father, if someone commands us to obey something God forbids, or forbids us from doing something God commands, they must be disobeyed. And saying, I was just following orders, just like in these last few, uh, there's, there's one final push lately, I understand, to find these last few war criminals, Nazis, who did these horrible atrocities. And every time they've been brought up and put on trial, I was just following orders, and it's not yet once been considered good enough of a response. Because in obeying one authority, you would be disobeying a higher authority. Remember when Potiphar's wife, Joseph's boss, said to him, come and lay with me. That's an order. And he said, how can I do this thing, this sin against God? I, by submitting to you, I would be breaking trust with a higher authority. So with Job, we say, though they slay us, yet we will honor him. And, and this is how the apostles respond. First of all, they don't give in. This intimidation would have worked on them a few weeks back. right? These, these are the guys, when Jesus was put to death, they were nowhere to be found. John was hanging out in the back. The rest of them, they scattered. Jesus said, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. They ran at the first sign of trouble when they recognized they weren't going to have the upper hand. But now the, the shepherd has been resurrected and the sheep are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way that this intimidation never worked on Jesus when they leaned on him, it will never again work on his followers. And thank God, because we wouldn't even be here if they had obeyed at that point. This could have been the end of the church before it even got started. But also notice, secondly, that they didn't completely pull out and just withdraw from everything, like the Essenes had before them. Let's go out in the desert. They didn't go into a monastic approach to spirituality, total disengagement from the world and become desert hermits and live on top of pillars and poles and things. There are these, these guys in church history, they went way, way out. And, and unlike John the Baptist, he went out there knowing people would come to him and he could teach them. No, 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 these guys, these hermits, when people found them and came to them, they went further out. They're like, leave me alone. I have to disengage in order to follow Jesus. But that makes no sense. Not when Jesus gave us a job to do that includes, in fact, at its core, is us engaging the world around us with the good news of the gospel. And when Peter responds, he responds, I'm so proud of this guy. He chops no ears off. He's so mature. He's so level-headed. He says to them, you, you be the judge of whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. After all, you're the judges. You're the Supreme Court in this religious world in which we live. So you judge. See, Peter is, is starting to get it. He's not looking for opportunities to be able to rebel against the authority. 
He's not looking for a chance, the loophole where he doesn't have to take it anymore. No, he's in a position where he can't obey. And so he says as much. Even though these are, these are the people that he looked up to his whole life as he was being taught the truths from the Scriptures. And you know, sadly, it often is the religious leadership, as in this case, that stands in the way of God's own commands. Because we get comfortable in the church. I think of missions that wouldn't have gotten started if people would have listened to the church around them. The Methodist missionary Thomas Koch, he wanted, he wanted to go to Sri Lanka. He wanted to be, he wanted to be the, the one who brought the gospel to that part of the world, to the East Indies. And he said, I'm going. And they said, you're senile. You don't know what you're doing. Other people said, no, you're just trying to build your own kingdom and your legacy. And he said, no, I have to go. And he brought some people with him. He died in the ship on the way there. And yet when they arrived, his followers began a great work. And the church grew and flourished there. Or I think of William Carey in England. I think of Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson here in America where people said, don't, yeah, you know what? If God wanted to reach those people, he'd do it himself. He doesn't need your little help. And they said, no, I, I know he wants me to go. And when they arrived in, in the India uh, port and found that, that they were ready to do missionary work, ministry, evangelism, there were people who rode in under the banner of the cross and said, listen, we can't have you doing this. We've got government officials here. We've got the East India Company over here. We, we can't have you telling all these people that we're exploiting that Jesus loves them and that they are equal to us, and that they have value. You can't, you can't do it. I think of John Newton and William Wilberforce in England, or people like Frederick Douglass and others in America who were working for abolitionism and who were in the churches, both in the North and the South, finding not support, but adversaries, threatening and pushing them back. And often when churches get comfortable, especially, and we need to be careful as a, a congregation that's been on this corner for coming up on a hundred years, right? In a denomination that goes back centuries to say we're not going to be that super comfortable group that will protect our own comfort, our own establishment, our own, our own uh, machine, our own uh, monument to ourselves over and above the gospel of Jesus Christ. As John Calvin said, a dog cannot bark with a bone in its mouth. Within the church, I have to watch myself and keep myself from critiquing people of other traditions who do things in different ways too harshly as if there's only one way to get things done. Moody was, was once uh, speaking at a church and afterward a woman came up to him and said, you know, I just have to tell you, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And he said, well, how do you do evangelism? She said, well, I, I mean, I, I don't. And he said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way that you don't. Within the church, we ought to be encouraging each other and building each other up for the mission that we share together. But Peter and John, verse 19, answered them, Whether it is right for the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot help it. We have to speak. That's the, this is off the table. The not speaking in the name. The not being a witness. The not proclaiming. It's not an option for us. We cannot but speak. 
Now, there is something to be said for not focusing on controversial secondary issues that can distract from the gospel. But when we allow ourselves to dull our message in order to avoid offending the world around us or even a church around us, it's the same thing as being silent. Or maybe it's worse. It's sort of like putting a dead virus into someone and inoculating them to what it contains. I think there are many people inoculated to the gospel because they've heard a limp, powerless version about a God who may or may not be there, who sent Jesus, who wasn't really divine, to die for sins that don't even exist, to save us from judgment that was never coming to begin with. Why would anyone need that? We see that there are two tracks. Yes, there's the lion. The devil stalks about as a roaring lion, but then there's the serpent. In the garden, there was the serpent slithering up, not attacking. They didn't see him coming and go, whoa! No, they said, ooh, that's pretty. Did God really say? Did God really say? And it seems to me that I see a subtle pivot here from the lion. They recognize, ooh, we've got to be the good guy. We've got to shift to the serpent tactic. We'll let you off with a warning. Listen, play ball and everything will be all right. Historically, this has worked far better against the church. A combination of carrot and stick with an emphasis on the carrot. And the church has been programmed in many cases to abandon the gospel entirely over time. Think of that urban legend about the psychology class that completely snowed their psychology professor with like the most basic of psychological tactics. They were learning about conditioning and positive stimulus and all these things. And, and so what they started doing is they would pay rapt attention to the professor whenever he got near a particular trash can. And the further away he got from it, the more they'd kind of look around and doodle and whisper. And over time, he began to get closer and closer, and they got him trained to the point where by the end of the semester, he would walk in, put down his things, turn the trash can over, and stand on it and give his entire lecture. Now, clearly, that is not a true story, but this is sort of what we see happening when many, especially older and established churches, have given away the gospel, or wildly successful churches that are growing and celebrated have given the gospel, swapped it out for something less offensive, something that even the Sanhedrin could go along with, swapped it out for social causes that are applauded by the world, not the name of Jesus, which is despised. But in Verse 12, we had already read, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, it might be even good that Coke died on the way to Sri Lanka. Because yes, there was a great uprising of Christianity, there was a great swell of faith, there was a great revival there, but after their independence from Britain in 1948, many of the established churches maintained their respectability with the Buddhist hierarchy by refusing to insist on the uniqueness of Christ. By refusing to say, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And at that time, Christianity began to dwindle because it was redundant in that culture. There's a story once that when Babe Ruth was at bat, Babe Pinelli was the, the umpire and they had a bit of a, a history 
and a bad, repu- uh, bad uh, history of, of getting angry with each other and, and challenging calls. And at one point, uh, a ball came in and, and Babe Ruth didn't swing and it was called strike. And he turned to him and he said, you tomato head or some other kind of head, I don't know. There are 40,000 people here who saw that that was a ball. And the umpire lifted his mask and said that very well may be, but my opinion is the only one that counts. As believers, we recognize we are surrounded by enticements to dull the sharp edge of the gospel, to take passages, pages, or whole books out of the Bible and say, "Mm, maybe not so much, not anymore, not these days, that's embarrassing. And yet, our God's opinion is the only one that counts. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. We have to ask ourselves the question, if we were brought before the Sanhedrin, wouldn't they say to themselves, these, these have been with Jesus. I can tell they've been with Jesus. I can tell because they're proclaiming Jesus. I can tell because they have the boldness of Jesus, even if they don't have the education we have and the social standing. These have been with Jesus. If not, we need to rediscover the urgency of the gospel. We, we do this by praying for it. You know, I, I've often prayed for opportunities to evangelize, but I find that things go better when I simply pray for the desire to evangelize. Because if I want to, the opportunities are already there. To be in the Word. Why were they bold even though they were nobody? Because they were well fed. I, I once heard someone say, I, I, I told my pastor that I didn't feel the desire to, to share my faith that I wanted to feel. And he asked, how often are you in the Word? And I said, eh, hit or miss. And he told me, is that how you plan your meals? Is that how you eat? Yeah, hit or miss. Maybe, and when you do that, you find your health starting to trail off and your strength start to leave you. I remember one time my buddy AJ, big buff guy, right, is starting a quarterback uh, on the football team, and uh, he and I were in a, a really amazing, amazing garage band together. I mean, top notch. And we were, his mom was out of town, and we spent three nights at his house practicing. Yeah, it was... We got so good, you guys. But uh, in the midst of that, his mom had nicely made a lasagna. Said, you boys, just eat this lasagna. Whenever you get hungry, cut a piece. So we left it on the counter, not in the fridge. That's wise. And I kept going up, taking another piece of lasagna, put it in the microwave. I'd eat another one, I'd eat another one. And at one point, I'm like, I'm the only one eating this lasagna. And I went downstairs. I said, AJ, aren't you hungry? I found a guy passed out on the ground. You got to eat. You find your strength in nourishment. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If we want to be bold like the apostles, we've got to be in the word like the apostles. We have to have community like they did, gathering together regularly. So two by two, we go out. Not one by one, lone wolfing it. Of course we're going to wuss out when it comes time to share the gospel in that case. They've been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Have you been spending time with Jesus? To be a Christian is to be a witness. And we see here that to be a witness means that God's claim on our lives will be at odds with other competing claims. Political claims, worldly claims, social, even religious claims on your life will challenge that and you have to say, no, I'm His. I'm God's. I belong to Jesus Christ. I was bought with a price. 
We cannot but speak. They couldn't help it. Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Back then, everybody would have their own little lamps with their own little source of olive oil. Today, you could hide a city on a hill. If you had high enough power, right, you'd just go and you'd cut the power source. They'd shut it all down. They did that on Die Hard. You know what I'm talking about. Cha-chung! Goes dark. Many of us, we're not, we're not people who can say, I cannot but I cannot but proclaim what I've seen, what I've experienced, what Jesus has done for me because we've cut the power and the city on the hill has been hidden. We might be afraid not to be dragged in front of powerful people like the Sanhedrin, but just to rock the boat a little, to stand out. And in those moments, simply praying that God through His Holy Spirit would give us the boldness and courage we need is often the solution. Lord, help me to be a faithful witness. Help me to be bold. Give me the words to say like you promised you would. Lord, give me the boldness of Peter. Not Simon. Not protecting my own name. Not swinging my own sword. Not working by my own, my own methods and my own desires. But let me be like Peter at his best. Peter, when he stood before the Sanhedrin and said, I have no choice. I've got to proclaim the gospel even if you threaten me with death. God's word shut up in me like a fire in my bones. And woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we too would have that fire shut up in our bones, that we would have a desire to preach the gospel that we could not override if we wanted to. Lord, we pray that we would be the billion-watt city on a hill, that this church would shine the light of the truth into this community, that each of us as we leave here and go into our different homes and jobs and vocations and neighborhoods, Lord, that we would be shining with the light of the truth. <clears throat> that we would be witnesses, faithful witnesses, proclaiming that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, willing even to disobey, if need be, the authorities over us, recognizing that the greatest authority over all of us is your Son, Jesus Christ, and, and the triune God who sits on the throne. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.